I don't know, but worship went by kind of fast for me this morning. Thank you, gentlemen. Good morning, church. We have spent a little time recently uh, learning to know the disciples. And um, when Pastor Tim and I started talking about this series on disciples and discipleship, um, we thought that we could do disciples for a long time, but we might wear out the saints in the process. And so we decided that we would mingle some things together, that we would talk disciples and discipleship, and we would talk through the book of Matthew written by one of those disciples. And so today we begin the first of uh, a series that will be mingled together. So you're going to see this thing kind of flowing back and forth. You'll see we'll talk about disciples a while. We'll talk about Matthew a while. We'll talk about disciples a while. There's a lot of disciples to talk about, and there's a lot of Matthew to talk about. But we're going to work through the two of them and see sort of the flow of them. And so we're going to be talking about Matthew today. Remember who Matthew is. Matthew was the tax collector, right? He's the guy among the group who was probably least likely, voted least likely by all of the disciples to write one of the best loved gospels in history, right? He is the guy who who is... uh, gone over from the Jewish side to the Roman side to collect taxes on behalf of those hated Romans. And so we find ourselves with the, with the New Testament's opening salvo. When you get through the Old Testament and you open up the New Testament, the first thing, the opening salvo of the New Testament is a book written by a guy who had given up on Judaism and had gone over to support the Romans, who ends up being a disciple of Jesus alongside Simon the Zealot, and boy, would I like to have heard those political conversations. You think your Facebook friends are crazy? Imagine this guy who was over on the Roman side and Simon the Zealot who absolutely hated the Romans. You just don't understand how crazy that would have been. That they did not come to blows is, well, well, we don't know. Maybe they just didn't record it in the Bible. Maybe the disciples said, we'll, we'll hold off on those wrestling matches between Simon and Matthew. But as Matthew begins the book, he begins with what I would consider kind of a rocky start. Um, how many of you are familiar that it was NFL draft weekend or the week this week? The rest of you were in a hole somewhere? It's been on the news, it's been on the radio, it's been everywhere you can look at. The NFL draft was going on this week, it's still going on. Um, this young man, his name, his first name is has been shortened to Tack because it's an unpronounceable first name. I, I, I was going to put it up there and try to pronounce it for you, but I'll just call him what his, everybody seems to call him, Tack McKinley. Tack McKinley is from Northern California, born in Oakland, raised in Richmond, a couple of pretty tough places in the Bay Area if you don't know the Bay Area well, and the neighborhoods he was in was were particularly particularly tough. Um, Never knew his father. His mother abandoned him when he was just a tiny little guy. Left to the care of his grandmother. That's her picture that you see him holding up. So he went to to Philadelphia to be a part of the draft because everybody assumed he'd be taken in the first round. And that's kind of what first rounders do. And so 
in the assumption that he was going to be taken and wanted to make a statement, all day long he carried that portrait of his grandmother around with him big enough to cover his whole chest. And that's a big chest. He hauled grandma around everywhere he went that day. He goes to lunch, grandma goes. He goes on television, grandma goes. He's sitting in the audience, grandma's sitting there with him. Everywhere he went, he took this picture of his grandmother. And when he was picked, when he, when he heard his name called, he stood up. And knowing that the mics were going to be on him, immediately he began to say, this is why I did it. And he's pointing at this picture he's carrying around. This is why I did it. He said, I promised her on her deathbed that I would make it into a Division I school and I would make it into the first round of the NFL draft and I would make it into the NFL. I am telling you, that is a big promise to come through on. He clearly had skill in high school. He promised her that he would get out of Oakland, he would get out of Richmond, and he would be okay. And he said 30 seconds later, she closed her eyes and died. This kid, rough streets, bad neighborhood, father not, a, not a, in the picture, mother abandons him, gets collected by his grandmother, and by all the records of what happens, typically in the hard, hard places in the inner cities, should have been on the pile of lost and forgotten like everyone else. But he hearkened back to the strength his grandmother gave him when he wanted to quit. Amazing the influence of this elderly woman on this young man. Now, we don't know what the rest of his life will be. But if that promise lingers as it has thus far and drives him as hard as it has thus far, we would expect great things from him. The reason I bring him up is for a couple of reasons. If you were to read what Matthew shares about Jesus in the opening of Matthew chapter 1, you would read a kid who's come from a pretty rough family. If you start looking down who, uh, at the group of people, Matthew names, this is a pretty, pretty tough group. Walking your way through it, you will find four grandmas. As you start walking through the list, there are five women named, 42 men, you find four grandmas. And I want to just start you out in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles with you, take it out because we're going to be looking at these grandmas. But I want you to understand a little bit about it. This is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. He's clearly writing for a Jewish audience. He speaks a lot of the Old Testament. He compares Jesus to Moses. Even the outline and the ebb and flow of this thing sort of follow along with the, a, a very Jewish sort of approach to things. It's broken into really five parts, which, as you know, uh, Israel builds its, uh, its history, its life, and its religion on the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. It's the most Jewish in that it constantly quotes the Old Testament 
to describe what Jesus is doing. The verifying of who Jesus is by quoting from the Old Testament. When he gives you a a Jewish uh, event, if he talks about the Passover, if he talks about something else, Luke explains them because he expects a Greek audience not to know what this is about. He never does. He assumes that his audience, who he is obviously writing to a Jewish audience, he assumes that his audience will know what he's talking about. And so he just keeps going on. He is concerned with connecting the Old Testament text to the story of Jesus. If you want to get a, a real good connection with how Jewish thought and Jewish uh, proof texting works, read Matthew. It'll be a little frustrating to the Western mind. It's a little frustrating because he pulls things out and you read, that is not what that text is about. But in Judaism, in the, in the way they would do proof texting, the way they would build an argument, it didn't really matter what the context was. It mattered what the phrase was. It mattered what the sentence was. It mattered what this little piece that they were pulling out was. They could make that apply, and, and he does. He uses a very rabbinic style to prove who Jesus is. Now understand he's proving, 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 constantly trying to tell the Jewish people who are reading his book, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus is about. And lastly, he's quite thorough. He's quite thorough. He covers the gamut. He covers a lot of what's going on. He and Luke are the most thorough of the Gospels. They're trying to record as much of the biography as possible. And he is trying to make sure we get the picture. All of the Gospels are written to help explain who Jesus is to the people who never met Jesus. That's us. John specifically targets it very carefully, but all of them are written to people who did not know and never met Jesus. And so Matthew is trying to explain to a Jewish audience who Jesus was, and he's trying to be as thorough as possible. The idea is, when you finish this gospel, you're supposed to be converted. If you started not believing in Jesus, if you're an unbelieving Jew, and you picked up Matthew's gospel, his goal was, by the time you finish the book, you would be converted. You would be a follower of Jesus. So he opens where a Jewish argument has to open. We would never start a book this way. We would think this is the most boring way. Let's start. We know how the first chapter is going to be the begats. That's what we'll do. Your editor would kick you out of his office. But if you're going to start an argument about who Jesus is from a Jewish perspective, you have to establish his lineage, his bloodline first. Because if your bloodline's not right, it doesn't matter what else you've got going on. It doesn't matter what else Jesus did. If he was from the wrong tribe, if he was from the wrong bloodline, it was impossible for him to have been the Messiah. So the very first thing he does is go through this list. He starts naming parentage. He starts with Father Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now just in those first few guys... We do not have a set of all-stars. Right? If you've read the Old Testament very much, you know that there's some, there's some messy things that go on in this very early group of people. We're only four generations down. And if you look at Abraham, well, he's three times a liar. Right? Isaac apparently was a terrible dad. Loved one of his kids over the other kid. Jacob... They had to change his name because he had such a bad reputation. Judah? Well, Judah is a piece of work. If you were to to pick your parentage, you'd skip these guys. 
What's great about this is Jesus doesn't have any other choice. These are, these are the first, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you've got to go there. Judah's the tribe. These are the first four. These are the, these are the pillars of his house. The pillars of the foundation of Jesus' house. And this is a pretty rocky set of pillars. They're no different than the disciples Jesus chose. Right? You start looking through the disciples, you don't have really much in the way of all stardom there either. Here they are. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah. Judah and his brothers. And Judah got, begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Are you familiar with this story? You see, Tamar, by the way, if you don't recognize it, this is grandma number one. This is Jesus' grandma number one in the story. Matthew is carefully selecting women to place them into this story. The story of Tamar takes us back to a moment when when Judah had left the rest of the family and he was living away from the other members of his family. He had... His, his, his flocks had grown. He was doing pretty well. He marries a woman from the Canaanites. She passes away. About the same time, he marries this young woman, Tamar, to his oldest son. The Bible simply says his son was wicked. And so God took him. You've got to be pretty bad for that to happen to you. So, as is normal, Leveret marriage says, if you are married to a brother, ladies, aren't you glad this isn't true today? If you are married to a brother and you have no children, you get passed on to the next brother. And the point of that is simply that, that you, as a, as a female, need somebody to protect you. You need a covering. You need a home to live in. You need a place to belong. You need a man. It is only in the last hundred years that we have come up with the idea that a woman doesn't need a man. We'll not start that conversation right now. But let me ask you, ladies, how's that working out for you? We'll just leave it there. Ooh, I just started a mess. If you want to know what I think about that, don't ask me. Ask somebody else. Somebody will tell you what I think. Passes them on to the second brother. Second brother refuses to give her a child. Refuses to. So he dies. Well, Judah's now thinking, this woman's cursed. There's some problem with her. I, don't want, I only have three sons. I got one left. The younger son is younger. And so he says to her, well, you know, go and stay with your father. In other words, go back under the house of your father and under your father's protection. And wait till he gets old enough to be married. Okay? Clock ticks, ticks, tick, 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 tick. Now this clock is ticking in Tamar's head. And it's getting louder and louder every day. Because Tamar knows she's at risk. The fear of being left alone, abandoned, is a big deal. The fear of of her father dying and her not being under the protection of her father, of Judah having not followed through on on what his promise was, and of that son getting older begins to grow into her until it starts to move into volcanic proportions and starts starts to act on her behavior. She hears that Judah is going to be in town. So she dresses up like a woman of the street who is selling the product of herself. And she sits outside the city where she knows he'll go by. Now, did you ever wonder how she knew he would stop and talk to her? 
What kind of reputation does Judah have with her? She knows what trap to set. And she sets the trap that fits the character of the man. So lest we think that she somehow worked this out on him and he's some kind of innocent, no. No. He comes by, sees her sitting there veiled, recognizes that veil, says that this is a woman of the street, makes an offer. She says, sure, but give me something to prove that you're going to pay me. He leaves behind his seal, his, the, the sort of braid that he would wear, and his staff. It's like leaving your license at the DMV. It's like leaving, you know, you, you go, to, you go to, the, to drive a car, test drive a car, they keep your, a copy of your license. They know who you are. It's like going to rob a bank and holding up a picture of your license before the camera. These were identifying marks, really strong identifiers of who this guy was. He leaves. When he leaves, she leaves. So when they come back to deliver the goat he had promised, no one is found. His friend comes back and says, hey, I couldn't find her. She wasn't there. In fact, the guys say there's no one there. Notice they ask the guys. Hmm. And there's never been someone there working that corner. Three months later, she begins to blossom and the word gets back to Judah that she's going to have a baby. No one knows at the time, but she's going to have two. Probably why the three-month blossom was such... He then sends word to have her taken out and burned to death. This is Jesus' grandpa. Rocky start. Before she can be burned to death, she sends a message to him. The message is a seal, a braid, and a staff. And she says, the child that I am about to bear belongs to the man who owns these three items. Now I am telling you, when those three items came in the door, everybody knew who the man was. He says, she is more righteous than I am. You think? He takes her as his wife. And Jesus' next generation of grandpa is born. Perez. Tamar. Rahab. Ruth. And Bathsheba. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is not, again, a group of high reputation. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Matthew decides to tell us, hey, Jesus is a son of Abraham, a son of David. He is the Messiah, and he decides to throw in these gals. And he picks them out. You don't normally even have to have a woman in the lineage list. You don't even have to put any women in that list. It's unusual to find a female in the list. And the only reason you would put a female in the list is because she was a superstar. 
You'd put Deborah in the list. Prophetess Deborah. Yeah, that would be cool. But you don't put Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. You don't, you don't tell people about that part of your family. My daughter just traced our family lineage back to like 1480 or something. She was just, she's sending me texts the other day. 1640, 1480. I don't even know where she ended up. Somewhere in Europe, someplace. Who knows is in that bunch? I know I can disclaim them because they all have different names by the time you get back that far. If your name is Neff, I may be related to you. He specifically picks these girls. So what is Matthew thinking? The genealogy of Jesus contains 42 men and 5 women. Four grandmas and all the grandmas have a rap sheet. Now, have you taken very much of a look at the guys? Maybe we should do that next week because there's not a lot of stars there either. Abraham might be the best one and he had some rough spots. You got David. Man after God's own heart. But there's some stuff going on there too. You have Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, stupidest guy who ever walked the earth. These are the Jesus' relatives. I mean, Mary and Joseph are the all-stars of the family. They really are. I mean, it seems like that last generation is the only thing he's got really going for him. Everybody else is a mess. Why put women in the story at all? And why these four women? Can I take you to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians? Now, you know the Apostle Paul is writing his letters much later. He's writing about the implication of Jesus' life. What, if, if this is Jesus' life, what are the implications of that life? What, are, what changes because Jesus lived? What changes because of what Jesus did? Well, this is what he says. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, ladies, this is New Testament for everybody. You're all sons of God. He's not trying to change your gender. He's just trying to say you belong to God. It's just that you were property and didn't get mentioned in sentences. Things have changed. You were all sons of God through faith in Christ. I heard one woman say, praise God. <laughs> you should have all been saying, praise God. <laughs> there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul will say, you know this whole separation that we make? It's, it's, an, it's an inferior separation. Let me look at it this way. Now, the Apostle Paul is arguing this. I don't know that, but something changed. The Apostle Paul is arguing that his case in the New Testament saying, once Jesus comes along, everything changes. But you've got to understand the context. If you're a Jewish male, do you remember what your prayer is in the morning? First thing you say to God when you wake up in the morning is, Dear God, it's a great morning. Thank you that I was not born a Gentile or a woman. That's the prayer. That's the way you start your prayers. You know, hallowed be thy name's a much different start. 
into that context, into that idea, I don't think that's going to happen. Into that context, into that experience, comes the apostle. The apostle is saying, look, look, you guys have been waking up every morning and you've been praying. Dear God, thank you that I was not born a woman or a Gentile. And, and Matthew comes along and he says, you want to see born into a woman? Let me take you to Jesus and let me show you who Jesus had as his grandmas. And let me help you understand that at the foot of the cross, everyone stands equal, male and female, all okay in Jesus' sight. All welcomed in the family equally. You don't, it's not that the men go into the church first and the women follow. Everybody's equal at the foot of the cross. Now, now he... Don't jump that into... Uh, 1965, okay? Or 1975. That's not his point. His point is not that there's no difference between men and women. Look around you. There is clearly a difference between men and women. But what he is arguing for is that once you are in Christ, your gender does not change his opinion of you. When you are in Christ, your gender does not change his opinion of you. Isn't that good news? Because understand that a woman was simply chattel. She was simply property. She belonged to somebody throughout the entirety of the writing of the Scriptures all the way through the end of the New Testament. This is a revolutionary idea that, that God thinks the same of the men and the women in the place. It happened so long ago that we don't realize what, it, what a dramatic shift it was. This was catching second gear without the clutch. This was grinding gears all the way through. Everybody who heard it realized what a revolutionary idea it was. Wait a second. You mean God thinks the same of women as men? Yep. You know what's crazy? You've got... You've got... Three women in here. One, the first one, pretends she's a prostitute. The second one actually was. And the third one is treated like it. And of the four, probably the most scandalous one is actually Ruth. For a Jew, the most scandalous one here is actually Ruth. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. But Ruth is a Moabite. Jesus, Grandma's 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 a Moabite. Jesus, Grandma was a Moabite. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, they are mentioned by Moses himself. The Ammonite and the Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Not welcome here. We don't want any Moabites. Thank you very much. Moabites, out. Ammonites, out. God doesn't love you. We don't like you either. 
probably the most scandalous person list. You have three women who most people would be, oh, scandalized by. This is probably the most scandalous one on the list. She's a Moabite. Moses said no Moabites. And here she is. She has a book in the Bible. Who thought that was a good idea? Doesn't that seem a little confusing to you? Moses says no Moabites. You give a Moabite a book in the Bible. Scandalous. Jesus' grandma right back there next to David. A Moabite. Hmm. The worst among the Gentiles. Like Ammonites, Moabites, Samaritans are above them. Ruth, in all of her story, shows us one tremendous character. When this woman meets her husband, he's a refugee from another country. And you know what country he's in? Moab. He's a Jew from the area around Bethlehem who has fled the region because... There's a famine there. And as he is now fled off into Moab, he meets a girl. And you know the story. They meet, they fall in love. He asks her to marry him. She marries him. And then he dies. And his brother meets a girl. They fall in love and they get married. And he dies. This is a rough time in history. You could die from the flu real easy back then. So these two women are left with their mother-in-law, whose husband has died. We have three women, no men. Well, the mother-in-law says to the daughters-in-law, I don't have anything I can do for you. You should go back to your father's houses. Why? Why again do they have to go back to their father's houses? They need the protection of a man. They belong to someone, and if their father's house, they'll at least, at least have a place to belong. You go back to your father's house. First daughter-in-law says, yeah, I'm going. Mother-in-law. You know what she's going to do? Her father's already dead, but she's going back to her people to hope that somebody will take her in. Otherwise, she's destitute. we find that one of her daughters-in-law is so, so loyal and so self-sacrificing that she's willing to immigrate with her rather than leave her by herself. The best story in the group is the story of Ruth, and yet she's the most scandalous one. She says, I will go with you back to your home. Where you die, I will die. Where you live, I will live. That's loyalty. Tremendous commitment to her. She goes back. You know, some of you know the story, some of you don't. She meets a man named Boaz. He buys her as a leveret process as well. Takes her as his wife. She becomes David's great-great-grandma. David, king of Israel. Great-grandma is a Moabite. 
These are the people Matthew was picking out. Why grab the Moabite woman as your next example? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and there is neither Jew nor Greek. You can read Jew nor Gentile. Not only does God think the same of men and women, He thinks the same of Jews and Gentiles. This is more rocky. This is more out there. People had, people had mommies. They liked their mommies in general. They weren't so upset with God thinking highly of their mom. They might be a little upset with God thinking highly of their wife, but not of their mom. And so that was not so terribly hard to take in. But now he's saying, you know, God thinks the same of Jews and Gentiles, right? You see, right in the history of Jesus, as he's going down through the list, you realize that you could make a case for all four of his grandmas being Gentiles. Ruth, well, you can't really count her too much because that was before they really made a separation. Rahab, they picked her up on the way in. You know, it was kind of a collection as you went along. They grabbed her, she helped out. Honorary Jew. Ruth, hard to fight that one. But she was a little bit of a question. But what's the point? What's Matthew throwing out there at the beginning? He's saying, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, Messiah, sees all of us the same. He says, look at his bloodline. Even in his bloodline is equality among this all. Born of a, of a Gentile. Born with three women who have questionable issues. We're not going to bring up his fathers and the mess they got themselves into. In Christ's actual DNA is an even spread of Jew and Gentile saint and sinner. In his actual physical bloodline. The blood spilt on the cross was a mingling of all of that. Amazing. In Christ, barriers between Jew and Gentile torn down. Now, right about now, I need to ask you a question. How are you feeling about your artificial barriers right now? I have seen some of your posts on Facebook. Some of you folks need to get over yourselves on your Democrat-Republican positions today. And I'm saying that kind of seriously. I know I kind of didn't, but I'm serious. It's a shameful thing that some of you folks are doing. Do not stand so firmly on your political position that you're willing to attack your brother or your sister. It's been happening for months and it needs to stop now. Heaven forbid that anybody would ever trace you back to this church. I would be embarrassed. Honestly. Don't be dumb. This equality, Jew, Gentile, is also Republican, Democrat, Independent, crazy right wing, crazy left wing, all in Christ in the blood. Picks the zealot 
and a sellout to the Romans among the disciples. You want to put Obama and Trump together? They were there among the disciples. Can you please stop it? Now, that I've made half of you mad and the other half of you are glad. <laughs> your, yours and my, our, our artificial separations in life are not just shown on Facebook. They're shown all over the place. The way we look out the window at our neighbor, the way we pick people out to be with, the, the things we do and say to others about others, the ones we choose to gossip about, the ones we won't. Be careful because in Christ, in His very DNA, is an inclusive relationship with the world. Every person who's ever taken a breath is a child of God. Whether they live next door or halfway around the planet, be very careful about setting up artificial delineations in your life. I'm not telling you to be stupid and not be discerning. Obviously, you need to be discerning. You need to differentiate between healthy and unhealthy people. You need to know what, you know, you need to be wise. But be careful about the artificial delineations that you're putting up. We all have them. We all, preachers included, we all have them. But be careful, because in Christ... This no, new, no Jew, no Gentile, no separation, women and men. This business is revolutionary idea. Okay. Some, never mind. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, the barriers between saint and sinner torn down. Saint and sinner. You look at the bloodline. Manasseh's in the bloodline of Jesus. Are you familiar with that man's history? Horrible guy up until the end of his life. And finally, at the end of his life, he sees the light. And at the end of his life, God takes him in and says, I welcome you home, my son. What about all the victims of his prior behavior, God? I know. I hate that. I'm sorry about that. But I still welcome him home. I'll do everything I can to bless and help them. And I'll walk with them. They are my children as well. But he, he wants to come home. Welcome home. Rahab, you, you lived on the outskirts of the town... Your house wasn't even in the wall. I mean, in the wall is sketchy. You were on the outside of the wall. They made you build your house on the other side of the wall. So anybody who came and attacked the city would get you. That's what they thought about you. Your own people of Jericho made you build your house outside the protection of the city. On the outside of the edge of the wall. All you were was an early warning system. When they heard you scream, they knew something was going on. Your behavior was so bad that the Gentiles rejected you. Not that they didn't visit you. 
at the foot of the cross in the blood of Christ mingled for all of those and all of us. The brokenness that we find is a testament of who we are. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. As many as you of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Huh. When you when you have put on Christ, when you've been wrapped in the robe of his righteousness, it got clean by the spilling of that very convoluted blood. It's crazy. It's got Jews and Gentiles and, and kings and prostitutes. It's got idol worshipers. It's got Canaanites. It's got Moabites. It's got the worst and the best of Judaism all mixed and mingled in to the blood of Christ that spilled on the cross, that washed the robe, that was placed on your shoulders. And you are now in, in Christ. You and I in the mix. It's not your background that counts. It's in that counts. It's not what you used to be and do that matters. It's in that matters. It's not the decisions you made yesterday. It's the decision to be in with Christ that matters today. Crazy is in your family, right? Crazy might be in you. Crazy might be in the person sitting to your right or to your left. In Christ is what matters. Crazy is not what matters. We all know what we've, we've brought with us. Some of us are choked by our paths every, pasts every time they come up. I know lots of people who will not go into church for, and they all say the same thing. The day I walk in the church, lightning will strike. No, it won't. Matthew's saying, look at Jesus' background. Lightning's not going to strike. It didn't strike his grandmas. It didn't strike, strike his grandpas. It's not going to strike you either. Because you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ are put, have put on Christ. Baptized in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all... One in Christ. So, so the only real separation in the world is in Christ and not in Christ. In Christ and out of Christ. And he's trying to get all those who are out in. That's the job of the church, trying to get everybody who's out in. Now imagine that we've decided that we're going to delineate by, by all kinds of different things. We're going to separate and delineate by, by gender or, or by nationality or by the weight of your background. You know, we're good with like... 50 point sinners. 51 out. You know, someone was praying this morning that we would be a place of healing. Do you realize that in order for healing to take place, sickness has to be present? Now, we, we throw around the idea a lot. 
If you want to be a place of healing, if we want to be a place where people can, can safely come and engage and be healed, are we willing to recognize that sickness comes with healing? Are we willing to recognize we brought our own? Are we willing, willing, are we willing to recognize that the sicknesses we had ourselves need healing? If you are in Christ, then you too are Abraham's seed. And your grandpa is Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. And you've got a grandma named Tamar who, for fear of a life unknown, was willing to do whatever it took. And you have another grandma named Rahab whose own people made her live on the outside of the city because of the behavior she was choosing. And you have a grandma named Ruth who was a Moabite. And you have a grandma named Bathsheba who was probably taken by force by the king. And you're the product of all of those grandmas and all of those grandpas because you in Christ. Grab Abraham by the hand. In Christ you are Abraham's seed. And and not all of the all of the funkiness of your bloodline is being weighed in that. That connection with Abraham gives you the right to be an heir of the promise of eternity. The promised land a city whose builder and maker is God. And anyone who wishes gets to join the family. Folks, I know that I have stirred up a lot of political passion this morning. I have one reason for stirring it up. That's to quiet it down. Because we all are seen in Christ the same. We are all sinners, broken, messed up, carrying a history that we really don't want other people to know about, covered by the blood, heirs of the promise, saved by His grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I can't imagine what it was like for these four women. The day that David sent a servant to get Bathsheba to bring her to the house must have been really scary. The day that the walls began to shake around Rahab's house. The Israelites marched around and marched around and marched around and she, she hung that scarlet marker in the window. Must have been really scary. The fear that drove Tamar to sell herself 
must have been overwhelming. And the fear in the heart of Ruth as she immigrated to a new land where her cousins had pronounced a curse and that never wanted her to be part of the family. Let alone the fear of Abraham leaving Ur. Of Jacob coming to meet Esau. Lord, we know what we're afraid of about our past. We know what we're afraid of. What we, what we fear that you can't forgive or won't. But we choose to be mingled with the confusing blood of Christ. As we recognize in Him, we choose to be covered by His blood, wrapped in His robe of righteousness, accepting of His grace. And as a result, we choose to be purveyors of that grace to everyone we come in contact with. In Jesus' name.